Elder Neil A. Maxwell, a member of the Twelve, has just addressed us, followed by the Tabernacle Choir singing, More Things Are Wrought by Prayer. Following my remarks, the Tabernacle Choir will conclude the session by singing, We Have Partaken of Thy Love. The benediction will be offered by Elder Douglas H. Smith, who was released yesterday as a member of the Seventy. This conference will then be adjourned until 2 o'clock this afternoon. Almost 40 years ago, I received an invitation to meet with President J. Reuben Clark, Jr., a counselor in the First Presidency of the Church, a statesman of towering stature, and a scholar of international renown. My profession then was in the field of printing and publishing. President Clark made me welcome in his office and then produced from his old roll-top desk a large sheaf of handwritten notes, many of them made when he was a law student long years before. He proceeded to outline for me his goal of producing a harmony of the Gospels. This goal was achieved with his monumental work, Our Lord of the Gospels. Recently, I took down from my library shelf a personally inscribed, leather-bound copy of this classic treatment of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. As I perused the many pages, I paused at the section entitled, The Miracles of Jesus. I remembered as though it were yesterday, President Clark asking me to read to him several of these accounts while he sat back in his large leather chair and listened. This was a day in my life never to be forgotten. President Clark asked me to read aloud the account found in Luke concerning the man filled with leprosy. I proceeded to read, And it came to pass, when he was in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy, who, seeing Jesus, fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And he put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. He asked that I continue reading from Luke concerning the man afflicted with palsy and the enterprising manner in which he was presented for the attention of the Lord. And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with the palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. There followed snide comment from the Pharisees concerning who had the right to forgive sins. Jesus silenced their bickering by saying, Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy couch, and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them, and took up that whereon he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. President Clark removed from his pocket a handkerchief 
and wiped the tears from his eyes. He commented, As we grow older, tears come more frequently. After a few words of goodbye, I departed from his office, leaving him alone with his thoughts and his tears. As I reflect on this experience, my heart fills with gratitude to the Lord for His divine intervention to relieve the suffering, heal the sick, and raise the dead. I grieve, however, for the many similarly afflicted who knew not how to find the Master, to learn of His teachings, and to become the beneficiaries of His power. I remembered that President Clark himself suffered heartache and pain in the tragic death at Pearl Harbor of his son-in-law, Mervyn S. Benyon, captain of the battleship West Virginia. That day, there had been no ram in the thicket, no steel to stop the shrapnel, no miracle to heal the wounds of war. But faith never wavered, and answered prayers provided the courage to carry on. And so it is today. In our lives, sickness comes to loved ones, accidents leave their cruel marks of remembrance, and tiny legs that once ran are imprisoned by a wheelchair. Mothers and fathers who anxiously await the arrival of a precious child sometimes learn that all is not well with this tiny infant. A missing limb, sightless eyes, a damaged brain, or the term Down syndrome greets the parents, leaving them baffled with sorrow and reaching out for hope. There follows the inevitable blaming of oneself, the condemnation of a careless action, and the perennial questions, why such a tragedy in our family? Why didn't I keep her home? If only he hadn't gone to that party. How did this happen? Where was God? Where was the protecting angel? If, why? Where? How? Those recurring words do not bring back the lost son, the perfect body, the plans of parents, or the dreams of youth. Self-pity, personal withdrawal, or deep despair will not bring the peace, the assurance, or help which are needed. Rather, we must go forward, look upward, move onward, and rise heavenward. It is imperative that we recognize that whatever has happened to us has happened to others. They have coped, and so must we. We are not alone. Heavenly Father's help is near. Perhaps no other has been so afflicted as the man Job, who was described as perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. He prospered by every measurement. In other words, he had it all made. Then came the loss of literally everything—his wealth, his family, his health. At one time, the suggestion was made that he curse God and die. Job's summation of his faith after ordeals that were terrible demanded a few others is a testimony of truth, a proclamation of courage, and a declaration of trust. Oh, that my words were now written, oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, 
Yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. Let me share with you a brief look into the lives of others to learn that after the tears of a day of despair, even a night of sorrow, joy cometh in the morning. Just two years ago, Eve Gail McDaniel and her parents, Bishop and Sister Jerry Lee McDaniel of the Reedsport, Oregon Ward, came to my office and presented as a contribution to the Church Historical Department a copy of the Book of Mormon which Eve had written by hand and placed in three large binders. Eve, then 28, was born September 18, 1962. A case of meningitis when she was a baby resulted in brain damage. She cannot read, but she copied the entire Book of Mormon letter by letter over a period of about 18 months. In doing so, she learned to recognize certain words and phrases, such as commandments, nevertheless. Her favorite, and she glowed as she repeated the phrase, was this, and it came to pass. Eve reflected the joy of accomplishment, even the smile of success. Her parents rejoiced in her gladness of heart and buoyancy of spirit. Heaven was very near that day. On another occasion, near the Christmas season, I had the opportunity to meet in the church office building with a group of handicapped children. There were about 60 in the group. My heart literally melted as I met with them. They sang for me. I am a child of God, Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, and as I have loved you, love one another. There was such an angelic expression on their faces and such a simple trust expressed in their comments that I felt I was on sacred ground. They presented to me a beautiful booklet where each one had prepared a special page illustrating those blessings for which he or she was most thankful at Christmas time. I commend the many teachers and families who work behind the scenes in bringing a measure of comfort, purpose, and joy to these special children. They brightened my entire day. Several years ago, Brigham Young University honored with a presidential citation Sarah Bagley Shumway, a truly remarkable woman of our time. The citation contained these words, and I quote, It is often within our homes and among our own family members that the eternally significant but usually unheralded drama of daily living occur. The people in these plain but important places bring stability to the present and promise to the future. Their lives are filled with struggle and deep feeling as they face circumstances that rarely fit neatly within the formula of plays, films, and newscasts. But their victories, however slight, strengthen the boundaries through which the history of future generations must pass." Close quote. Sarah married H. Smith Shumway, then her friend and sweetheart of nine years, in 1948. The courtship was longer than most because Smith, an infantry officer in World War II, was blinded and severely wounded by a landmine explosion 
in the advance on Paris, France. During his long rehabilitation, Sarah learned Braille so that she could correspond with him in privacy. She couldn't tolerate the idea of others reading her letters aloud to the man she loved. Something of the spirit of this young couple comes to us in the simple candor of Smith Shumway's proposal of marriage. Finally home in Wyoming after the war, he told Sarah, If you will drive the car and sort the socks and read the mail, I will do the rest. <laughs> she accepted the offer. Years of study led to a successful career, eight accomplished children, a host of grandchildren, and lives of service. The Shumways along life's pathway have faced problems of a child with severe deafness, a missionary son developing cancer, and a twin granddaughter injured at birth. My family and I had the privilege to meet the entire Shumway clan at Aspen Grove a year ago. It was our joy to be with them. Each wore an identifying T-shirt on which was a map depicting the location of each child and family, along with the names of all. Brother Shumway, with justifiable pride, pointed to the location on his shirt of his precious ones and beamed the smile of gladness. Only then did I ponder that he had never seen any of his children or grandchildren. Or had he? While his eyes had never beheld them, in his heart he knew them and he loved them. At an evening of entertainment, the Shumway family was on the stage at Aspen Grove. The children were asked, What was it like growing up in a household with a sightless father? One daughter smiled and said, When we were little, occasionally we felt Daddy should not have too much dessert at dinner. So without telling him, we would trade our smaller helping with his larger one. <laughs> Maybe he knew, but he never complained. One child touched our hearts when she recounted, When I was about five years old, I remember my father holding my hand and walking me around the neighborhood, and I never realized he was blind because he talked about the birds and other things. I always thought he held my hand because he loved me more than other children. Fathers loved them. Today, Brother Shumway is a patriarch. Who would you guess learned typing skills so as to be able to type the many blessings he gives? You're correct, his beloved wife, Sarah. Smith and Sarah Shumway and their family are examples of rising above adversity and sorrow, overcoming the tragedies of war-inflicted impairment, and walking bravely the higher roadway of life. Ella Wheeler Wilcox, the poetess, wrote, it's easy enough to be pleasant when life flows by like a song, but the man worthwhile is the one who will smile when everything goes dead wrong. For the test of the heart is trouble, and it always comes with the years, and the smile that is worth the praises of earth is the smile that shines through tears. May I conclude with the inspiring example of Melissa Engel of West Valley, Utah. Melissa is featured in the August 1992 issue of The New Era. She tells her own story, and I quote, When I was born, I only had a thumb on my right hand. 
because the umbilical cord got wrapped around my fingers and severed all of them. My dad wanted to find something I could do to strengthen my hand and make it useful. Playing the violin seemed like a natural because I wouldn't have to finger with both hands like you would with the flute. I've been playing for about eight years now. I take private lessons and I have to work at things like a paper route to help pay for them. I get to my violin lessons by riding a bus across town. A highlight of my life was Interlochen, located on a lake in Michigan, one of the best music camps in the world for youth. I sent in my application for the eight weeks of intensive music training and couldn't believe I was accepted. The only problem was money. It cost thousands of dollars, and there was no way I could make that much before the deadline. So I prayed and prayed. About a week before I had to send in the money, I was called into the office of a man who had a grant for someone with a handicap who was pursuing the arts. That to me, she said, was a miracle. I'm really grateful for it. Melissa, when she received the grant, turned to her mother, who had been anxious not to see her daughter disappointed and had thus attempted to curb her enthusiasm and hope, and said, Mother, I told you Heavenly Father answers prayers, for look how he has answered mine. Close quote. He that notes a sparrow's fall had fulfilled a child's dream, answered a child's prayer. To all who have suffered silently from sickness, to you who have cared for those with physical or mental impairment, who have borne a heavy burden day by day, year by year, and to you noble mothers and dedicated fathers, I salute you and pray God's blessings to ever attend you. To the children, particularly they who cannot run and play and frolic, come the reassuring words, Dearest children, God is near you, watching o'er you day and night. There will surely come that day even the fulfillment of the precious promise from the Book of Mormon. The soul shall be restored to the body and the body to the soul. Yea, and every limb and joint shall be restored to its body. Yea, even a hair of the head shall not be lost, but all things shall be restored to their proper and perfect frame. And then shall the righteous shine forth in the kingdom of God. From the psalm echoes the assurance, My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Through the years, the Latter-day Saints have taken comfort from the favorite hymn, Remembered from Our Youth. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you will be singing as the days go by. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, 
Do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. To any who from anguish of heart and sadness of soul have silently asked, Heavenly Father, are you really there? Do you hear and answer every prayer? I bear to you my witness that he is there. He does hear and answer every prayer. His Son, the Christ, burst the bands of our earthly prisons. Heaven's blessings await us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Your spontaneous prelude in the balcony soothed my soul. At the beginning of this ministry, I gratefully acknowledge your sustaining vote and the continuing love and support of my eternal companion, my children, parents, and family. As this tabernacle was dedicated on October 9, 1875, President John Taylor read the following words of petition and dedication in Brigham Young's inspired prayer, quote, We dedicate and consecrate that portion of this house where our presidents and thy servants now are to be a holy and sacred place wherein thy servants may stand forth to declare thy words and minister unto thy people in the name of thy Son forever. May thy holy angels and ministering spirits be in and round about this habitation, that when thy servants are called upon to stand in these sacred places to minister unto thy people, the visions of eternity may be open to their view, and they may be filled with the spirit and inspiration of the Holy Ghost and the gift and power of God. And let all thy people who hearken to the words of thy servants drink freely at the fountain of the waters of life, that they may become wise unto salvation." Since the beginning of this Latter-day work, those who have stood to address the saints have done so only after much reflection, contemplation, fasting, and prayer. Surely each speaker has sought for the visions of eternity and that they might be filled with the spirit and inspiration of the Holy Ghost and the gift and power of God. The hope in each of their hearts, as in mine today, has been to bless the lives of those who will hear and hearken with words that will cause them to become wise unto salvation. Do the members of the Church truly understand the importance of the messages spoken from this pulpit in general conference sessions and other special meetings held in the tabernacle? Do they understand their responsibility to hear the voice of the Lord through the voice of His servants? For certainly, whether by the Lord's voice or by the voice of His servants, it is the same. Do our members understand that the inspired counsel and direction they receive from the leaders of the Church comes as a voice of warning from a loving Heavenly Father who knows the various calamities that should come upon the inhabitants of the earth? The anger of the Lord is kindled and His sword is bathed in heaven, and it shall fall upon the inhabitants of the earth. Wherefore, the voice of the Lord is unto the ends of the earth, that all that will hear may hear. Because many know not where to find it, people of the world are impoverished for the word of God, 
spoken in clarity and plainness by true servants of the Lord, and lived in a spirit of obedience by his disciples. Spiritually bankrupt lives of individuals and families stand as mute testimony of the futility of attempting to live in today's society without revealed direction from our Heavenly Father through his prophets and apostles. How much of the evil in the world, how much of the suffering and sorrow and sadness could be eliminated if people would hearken to the inspired instruction from the leaders of the Church spoken from this pulpit? We are concerned at the number of lives being lived in relative spiritual darkness when available to each are the words of the prophets in our day. And these prophetic utterances become a lamp unto the feet and a light unto the path of each of Heavenly Father's children, willing to listen and then live in conformity with revealed truth. President Benson has taught, Success in righteousness, the power to avoid deception and resist temptation, guidance in our daily lives, healing of the soul, these are but a few of the promises the Lord has given to those who will come to His word. Accordingly, with great urgency, we invite all to come to the source of the fountain of light and truth. Even the revealed word of God is taught in the scriptures and by the present prophets and apostles and other general leaders of this Church. We invite all to hear and hearken to the messages of this and other recent conferences. President Benson's recent instruction on this point is timeless. Quote, For the next six months, your conference edition of the Ensign should stand next to your standard works and be referred to frequently. As my dear friend and brother, President Harold B. Lee said, we should let these conference addresses be the guide to our walk and talk during the next six months. These are the important matters the Lord sees fit to reveal to this people in this day." Unquote. And here are these inspired statements from three conference addresses by President Marion G. Romney. Quote, in this conference, we have been greatly entertained at times with eloquent oratory. We have been taught by great teachers. We have heard enough truth and direction in this conference to bring us into the presence of God if we would follow it. We have been taken on to the spiritual mountain and shown visions of great glory. But how many of us have heard that voice saying, We would have a part therein? What we get out of general conference is a buildup of our spirits as we listen to those particular principles and practices of the gospel which the Lord inspires the present leadership of the Church to bring to our attention at the time. He knows why He inspired the other brethren who have talked in this conference to say what they have said. It is our high privilege to hear through these men what the Lord would say if He were here. If we do not agree with what they say, it is because we are out of harmony with the Spirit of the Lord. Today the Lord is revealing His will to all the inhabitants of the earth and to members of the Church in particular on the issues of this our day through the living prophets with the First Presidency at the head. What they say as a Presidency is what the Lord would say if He were here in person. This is the rock foundation of Mormonism. So I repeat again. What the Presidency say as a Presidency is what the Lord would say if He were here, and it is Scripture. It should be studied, understood, and followed, even as the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants and other Scriptures. Those who follow this course will not interpret what they say as being inspired by political bias or selfishness. 
Neither will they say that the brethren are uninformed as to the circumstances of those affected by their counsel, or that their counsels cannot be accepted because they are not prefaced by the quotation, Thus saith the Lord. Those who will, through mighty prayer and earnest study, inform themselves as to what these living prophets say and act upon it, will be visited by the Spirit of the Lord and know by the Spirit of Revelation that they speak the mind and will of the Father. What are the volumes of teachings from our beloved prophet and president, Ezra Taft Benson? He is now in the fiftieth year of service as a special witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Moses, his hands have become somewhat heavy from his ministry. But his words spoken from this pulpit throughout his inspired ministry will continue to bless the lives of the faithful. In an inspired statement from a much earlier day, President Wilford Woodruff spoke of the utterances of the men who have stood at the head of the Church. Quote, when prophets speak under the influence of their prophetic power, they amplify or add to the body of revelation by the Church. They guide us in the maze of contending forces. Each one uses past revelation and the new to meet the needs of the people of his day. The discourses of these men should be read and observed as inspired messages for our guidance toward joy on earth and hereafter. End of quotation. Therefore, we repeat our plea that members and others return to the messages of our beloved prophet. We should read them and heed them, and as we hearken to those messages, along with the other words of the living prophets and leaders spoken from this pulpit, may we become wise unto salvation. It is my witness that President Ezra Taft Benson, his counselors, and the members of the Council of the Twelve are apostles and prophets of the Lamb of God, and that this Church and its work of bringing souls to Christ rests solidly upon the foundation of the goodness, faith, and unity of our living apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ lives and is the very cornerstone of this work of salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. A friend of mine was urging her children to get into the car on Sunday morning so that they would not be late for their Sunday meetings. Please hurry, Matthew, she said. And from somewhere in another part of the house, she heard, I'm coming, I'm coming. And Mother replied, Yes, and so is Christmas. And just at that minute, Matthew's three-year-old face appeared in the nearby doorway, and he said, Oh, goody, goody, I just love Christmas. <laughs> well, I'm here today to tell you that I just love Christmas, too. And one of the wonderful things about being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that we make the events of the Christmas season part of our day-to-day -day living. As I read the account of the birth of my Savior, I long to have the experience the wise men had, to be led by a star, or to experience what the shepherds did, to be invited to Bethlehem, invited by a choir of angels. I want to kneel at the manger and smell that clean straw and see that tiny baby and his earthly mother and witness for myself that miracle. I believe in every mortal there is an instinctive desire to come unto Christ. Perhaps we have a basic human need, 
because each of us is a child of God, to make that commitment to the spiritual part of our being. And we each try to meet that need according to what we know. As members of His true Church, perhaps we do not need to be taught new things as much as we need to be reminded of what we already know. That is what pondering the birth of our Savior does for all of us. I believe it reminds our mortal minds of things our spirits already know. In this latter day, I have been invited to witness marvelous things for myself. The invitation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Come unto Christ and come back, is meant for each of God's children. This invitation has stood true since Jesus said to his disciples, Come, follow me. Through the dispensations, prophets have issued the same invitation to all who will listen. The prophet Alma, the son of Alma, carried this important message to the members in Zarahemla who needed to be reminded. The prophet said, Behold, he sendeth an invitation unto all men, for the arms of mercy are extended towards them, and he saith, Repent, and I will receive you. Yea, come unto me, and bring forth works of righteousness. As a baptized member of the Church, I hear the invitation and I wonder, how do I get there from here? Because I know the Lord intends to include all of us in this invitation, my personal honest response is the same as my little friend Matthew's. I'm coming, but what is my duty? Now Alma reminded the people of Zarahemla of their duty, ending with the important phrase, Come unto me and bring forth works of righteousness. By using Alma's counsel as our guide, come with me on a journey to remember what we can do to answer his invitation. We can search the Word of God. Through studying and pondering the scriptures and the words of the Latter-day Prophets, we can feast on the words of Christ, and the words will tell us all the things that we should do. Then we must nourish the word and allow it to take root. And after we hearken to the word and hold fast to it, we are promised that the temptations and fiery darts of the adversary will not overpower us. We will be able to recognize the truth when we hear it, just as the shepherds and the wise men knew when they were told about the Savior's birth. The scriptures are the word of God and a light to us and the world. And we can follow this light as if it were our guiding star. We can pray, and we can call upon our Heavenly Father in the name of our Savior. Prayer provides an opportunity for us to express gratitude, and taking an inventory of our blessings fills us with hope. Pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love. We can ask for what we need, minute by minute and hour by hour. <clears throat> it is possible to have this personal conversation with Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ by kneeling in prayer, just as surely as if we could kneel beside the manger and see the Savior there. We can participate in the saving ordinances. We are reminded of our baptismal covenants by partaking of the sacrament. 
Sacrament prayer helps us remember him and his goodness. We can live worthy to participate in the temple ordinances. These ordinances are the culminating act of conversion of mortal men and women, which fulfills that need for an earthly commitment to heavenly knowledge. We can consider our visits to the temple as a personal pilgrimage to a sacred place, as the shepherds must have considered their journey to that humble manger. We can increase our talents. These are the gifts we bring. The talents we have come from Heavenly Father, and to honor Him, we can develop and expand them and then return them to Him. Each of us possesses some talent which we can practice and increase and offer. Are you regularly practicing your talents? Perhaps your talent is kindness or gratitude. How about being cheerful, helpful, and unselfish? How about practicing that winning smile? The wise men brought their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We can bring our talents. We can serve others. Serving others in any way is an indication of our desire to respond to his invitation to come unto him. How about a checkup on our service to others? Will I make that visit to my homebound friend? Will I open my mouth to defend and testify of truth? Will I give of my worldly goods? Do I share some of my fresh, productive time with my children? Do I serve with joy in my church calling? There are times I feel overwhelmed with the calling I have, but I trust in the Lord to give me courage and help me do His will. Likely most of you want to feel secure and safe and live quietly within boundaries which are familiar and comfortable. However, without the risk of new experiences and challenging calls to serve, we fail to grow, and we're just not as useful in helping the Lord build His kingdom here as we need to be. Just as the shepherds left familiar terrain in dark of night for a new experience, we are called to leave secure and comfortable settings to serve and to gain experience. I believe that each of us can recreate that familiar scene in Bethlehem in our own lives. We can have a star to follow just like the wise men did. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The scriptures can light our way and our testimonies can be a light from within. The voices of angels can be the voice of our beloved prophet and his servants. We can kneel at the feet of our Savior just as literally as the shepherds and the wise men, but we do it in prayer. The gifts we bring are our talents. We can shout Hosanna like that angelic choir and spread the good news by bearing our testimonies. Each new day is an opportunity to bind ourselves to act according to what we know. By works of righteousness, we can come unto Him each day of our lives, just as if we had trod in our sandaled feet the rocky path to Bethlehem, holding a staff or bearing gifts. I pray that Heavenly Father will help us be wise men and wise women, 
wise enough to accept his invitation and nourish his word and follow a straight course to eternal bliss. May we all cheerfully answer, I'm coming, for I testify, if a man bringeth forth good works, he hearkeneth unto the voice of the shepherd, and doth follow him. This I do in the name of the shepherd, who hath called after you, and is still calling after you, Jesus Christ. Amen. Forever, <clears throat> I, will be great, I will gratefully acknowledge our Lord's blessings to me, which I do so again at this time. As directed, we have assembled to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to be built up in our faith and desires for righteousness. We testify to one another of our Master and receive counsel from those appointed to administer the affairs of His kingdom here on earth. Conferences of this Church are far, far more than a convention where views are expressed <clears throat> or policies adopted by vote, but they are assemblies where the mind and the will of the Lord is manifest by His servants. The, Lord, the Church is not a democracy, it is a kingdom. Thoughtful, concerned people in many areas and nations of the world, as well as Latter-day Saints, are concerned with the growing pressures and influence of a disturbing cultural movement downgrading social and religious values and standards of morality. Each succeeding generation has weakened or lessened previous Church-centered ideals and values. Michael Hursley, who writes for the Chicago Tribune, recently observed that, the, that predicting America's religious future is risky business, that the nation's most widely accepted prejudice is anti-Christian. The actual signs of the times are threatening. Where will they lead? I, for one, am concerned. Previous periods of moral decline brought forth divine attention. In past times, as at present, prophets of God have delivered a voice of warning. The Lord said to Ezekiel, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word and give them warning from me. From what we are witnessing happening in the world around us, I am impressed today to raise a voice of warning for mankind to prepare by repentance for the great day of the Lord. I am indebted to Elder Dallin Oaks for an account which I referred to as a modern-day parable, and I referred to as the parable of a bushy-tailed squirrel, the tree, and a dog, which illustrates the concern. As two men walked across an Eastern University campus, they were attracted by a crowd of people surrounding a large maple tree. As they approached, they noticed that the crowd was being amused by the antics of a fox-tailed squirrel circling the tree, climbing it, 
and running back down again, running up and down again. A red Irish setter dog crouched nearby, intently watching the squirrel. Each time the squirrel ran up the, ran up the tree out of sight, the dog would slowly creep towards the tree. The squirrel paid little attention to the dogs as the dog crept closer and closer, patiently abiding its time. People watching this entertaining drama unfold, unfold knew what could happen, but they did nothing until, in a flash, the dog, catching the squirrel unaware, had it in the grip of his sharp teeth. The people then rushed forward in horror, forcing the dog's mouth open to rescue the squirrel. It was too late. The squirrel was dead. Anyone could have warned the squirrel or held back the dog, but they had been momentarily amused and watched intently while evil slowly crept up on good. When they rushed to the defense, it was too late. We see around us, to, uh, around us daily that which is portrayed in this parable. We sit idly by as an insidious stream of profanity, vulgarity, demeaning behavior, a mocking of righteous ideals and principles invades our homes and lives and lives through most types of the media teaching our children negative values and moral corruption. We then become upset when our children perform differently than we would wish, and social behavior continues to deteriorate. One newspaper headline reads, The battle lines are clearly, clearly drawn for America's cultural war. The article then asks, Who determines the norms by which we live and govern ourselves? Who decides what is right and wrong, moral and immoral, beautiful and ugly? Whose beliefs shall form the basis of law? Our cultural challenge is about who we are and what we believe." End of quote. Cal Thomas of the Los Angeles Times wrote, Some see the state as either equal or superior to God in human affairs. Theirs is an uninvolved God who trickles down blessings when we want them, but whose commands are to be ignored when He asks us to do something we don't want to do. The fact is that our lives, that our laws come from a standard of righteousness that was thought to promote the common good or general welfare. That standard has been abandoned as biblical illiteracy has flourished. Thanks in part to the state's antipathy towards immutable and eternal truths. William Penn warned, If we are not governed by God, then we will be ruled by tyrants. One's view of God and His requirements for our personal lives determines one's views of the role of the state in public life. Benjamin Franklin observed that if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without God's knowledge, can an empire rise without his aid? The late philosopher-theologian Francis Schaeffer wrote, 
that God has ordained the state as a delegated authority. It is not autonomous. The state is to be an agent of justice, to, rest- to rest- restrain, restrain evil by punishing the wrongdoer and to promote the good in society. When it does, when it does the reverse, it has no proper authority. It is then a usurped authority, and as such, it becomes lawless and tyranny. This is what the culture struggle or war is really about. It is a conflict between those who recognize an existing God who has spoken about the order of the universe, the purpose of the state, and the plan for individual lives, and those who think those instructions are unclear or open to interpretation or that God is irrelevant to the debate or doesn't exist and we are on our own. Thirty years ago, students could still pray and read the Bible in school. Abortion was illegal, and gay rights meant the right to be happy. The, The issue now is whether we will become our own God." End of quote. No wonder Isaiah, speaking under inspiration, declared, Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Unchangeable God-centered principles and ideals adopted by our Founding Fathers not only form the basis of freedom, but are the rivets that hold it together. There is a vast difference between the principles that are unchangeable and preferences where there is a choice. There should be no question about our standards, our beliefs, about who we are. Eyewitnesses of participants declare of the faith and the courage of the converts who left their homes in America or Scotland or Sweden as well as their families and material possessions to join with Brigham Young and thousands of pioneers in establishing the Zion Joseph spoke about in the Far West. Joseph Smith, their prophet, teacher, and friend, had seen God. He saw the living Christ. Few of all, few of all ever created have ever glimpsed such a vision. Peter, James, and John, Moses, Abraham, and and Adam, only a few ever. Joseph Smith belonged to an elite group who had been tried, trusted, and found true. He was one of those described by Abraham as one of the noble and great ones who became one of the Lord's choice servants here on earth. Courageous and faithful people by the tens of thousands heard and believed the glorious message of a new hope for a better way of life. Did they expect to find riches at the end of the newly found rainbow, a life of comfort and ease? To the contrary, there was to be heartache, cold, pain, and hunger, with insults and injury, including tragic loss of life. It was the assurance they knew and felt of divine direction that expanded their faith to withstand such hardships. 
men and women of strong physical and spiritual strength conquered the wilderness and established what Isaiah saw and wrote of 700 years before the birth of Christ when he, he wrote, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above all the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the law from Jerusalem. What was their purpose? What was their motive? Not for the gold in California, but they, but that they might worship God Almighty according to the dictates of their own conscience. Such was their motive, to establish the Lord's Church and teach the eternal principles revealed to their prophet Joseph Smith. They had risked everything they had and were willing to endure any hardship. The recorded history of that journey and of the early beginnings in this valley is one of civilization's finest hours. There was little inviting in this endeavor except faith. In fact, they had been warned that nothing would grow. Now, farms, cities, towns flourish. They were builders, not destroyers. They had a majestic dream of great things and lofty ideals, of homes and gardens, temples and meeting houses, schools and universities. It would take hard work, hard, hard work, and everyone's best efforts to make it happen. happen. They became experienced colonizers and benefactors to our nation and to humanity. Many of us are a product of that early-inspired colonization as teachings and blessings of the value of hard work coupled with desire and faith for a better way of life. The depth of their faith in, in a living God and their loyalty and obedience as well as their solid foundation of righteousness inspire us today. They believed that they had started on their way towards perfection, a process to be pursued laboriously throughout a lifetime, President Kimball declared, but to each person is given a pattern, obedience through suffering and perfection through obedience. Their pathway was straight, uncluttered, unbending. They were to live the commandments of God and endure to the end. Today we know how we should live. We know right from wrong. We are to teach and train our children in the ways of the Lord. Children should not be left to their own uh, devices in the learning of character and family values or in of the listening to and watching unsupervised music or television or movies as a means of gaining knowledge and understanding as to how to live their lives. 
the Lord has clearly commanded that, pa- that parents are to teach their children to do good, to teach them the doctrines of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism, and of the gift of the Holy Ghost, and by the, la- by the laying on of the hands when eight years old, or the sin shall be upon the heads of the parents. And they shall always teach, and also teach their children to pray, and to walk uprightly before the Lord. And ye will not suffer your children that they go hungry or naked, neither will ye suffer that they transgress the laws of God. But ye will teach them to walk in the ways of truth and soberness. Ye will teach them to love one another and to serve one another. A concerned God by his own finger wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. They represent the basic law of the Almighty and have formed the underlying elements of civil and religious law ever since. The Sermon on the Mount, given by our Lord Himself, details principles and instructions of heavenly origin. Both of these divine statements of instruction, principles of which are so effectively taught in much greater detail in the Book of Mormon and the Bible and our other scriptures, if obeyed, will strengthen mothers and fathers and sons and daughters who will have equal who all have equal duty to study the scriptures and gain strength and understanding of eternal things. The only sure way to protect ourselves in this society and our families from the onslaughts of the teachings of the world is to commit to, live, to commit to live the commandments of God, to attend our church meetings where we can learn and be strengthened in our testimonies, and to partake of the sacrament to renew our covenants, to prepare ourselves to worthily enter the temple where we may find a refuge from the world and a place of renewal of our capacity to cope with the evils of the world. I so declare to you, as I leave you my witness and testimony, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I'm grateful for the power of the choir, the power of music, to introduce a spirit of reverence and worship. We're counseled to seek diligently and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom, seek ye learning even by study and also by faith. The words study and faith each portray a type of education. First, we are commanded to teach one another the doctrines of the kingdom. Teach ye diligently, and my grace shall attend you, that you may be instructed more perfectly in theory, in principle, in doctrine, in the law of the gospel, in all things that pertain unto the kingdom of God. And we are also to obtain a knowledge of history and of countries and of kingdoms, the laws of God and man, and all this for the salvation of Zion. 
The Church must concentrate on moral and spiritual education. We may encourage secular education, but not necessarily to provide it. There is much said in the scriptures about the gathering of the saints. In the early days, the call went out to converts all over the world to gather to Zion, and they came, first as a trickle and then as a stream. The Zion to which they came was under terrible persecution and was greatly strengthened by their very numbers. Because there were no public schools, the Church opened schools. Even in our own generation, schools have been established where there were none. Something of the spirit of gathering touched our schools. I can remember as supervisor of seminaries attending state conferences with the general authorities to recruit students for our church schools. In an area conference held in Mexico City in 1972, Bruce R. McConkie said, The revealed words speak of there being congregations of covenant people of the Lord in every nation, speaking every tongue, and among every people when the Lord comes again. The place of gathering for the Mexican saints is in Mexico. The place of gathering for the Guatemalan saints is in Guatemala. The place of gathering for the Brazilian saints in Brazil, and so it goes throughout the length and breadth of the whole earth. Every nation is the gathering place for its own people. The following April, President Harold B. Lee quoted those words in general conference and, in effect, announced that the pioneering phase of gathering was now over. The gathering is now to be out of the world into the Church in every nation. As public schools became available, most of the Church schools were closed. At once, seminaries and institutes of religion were established in many nations. Some few schools are left over from that pioneering period, Brigham Young University and Ricks College among them. Now BYU is full to the brim and running over. It serves an ever-decreasing percentage of our college-age youth at an ever-increasing cost per student. Every year, a larger number of qualified students must be turned away simply because there is no room for them. Leaders and members plead for us to duplicate these schools elsewhere. But we cannot, neither should we, attempt to provide secular education for all members of the Church worldwide. Our youth have no choice but to attend other schools. Those who cannot attend Church schools have been counseled by the First Presidency to gather where there is an institute of religion. The Institute program will be greatly enhanced for your benefit. Some of you live in countries where schooling is relatively easy to obtain. Others must struggle simply to learn to read and to write because schools or the means to attend them are beyond your reach. Some of you require special education because of learning disabilities or limitations in what you can hear or see or how you can move about. For many, it is a matter of money. The economic condition of your family or your country makes getting an education seem like an impossible dream. You who find schooling 
easily available <clears throat> must remember this. God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The Lord does not, and the Church cannot, admit to favoritism to those who are able to obtain professional degrees as compared to those who seek training in a practical field or those who have little or no schooling at all. Unless you have the vision of the ever-growing millions of members all over the world, you may not understand why the Brethren make the decisions we make concerning Church schools. This summer, Sister Packer and I, at a family reunion, announced the end of a family tradition. Our ten children and some of our grandchildren have attended BYU. It will not be possible for all of our grandchildren to follow that tradition. We advise them to follow the counsel of the Brethren. If they cannot attend a Church school—and this will in be increasingly the case—they should gather with other members of the Church at a school where an institute of religion is available to them. Then, as they study secular subjects, they may learn the covenants and Church articles as the scriptures tell us we should. They will not be judged on how many degrees they hold <clears throat> or how extensive their schooling may be, but on how well educated they are in those things which are of eternal value. We told our family that we will be quite as proud of them learning a trade as we would a profession. We will be equally pleased with them if they choose vocational schools and make their living with their hands. After all, education continues as long as we live. If there is ever an end to secular learning, surely there is no end to spiritual learning. The Lord's work moves forward on the strength of those who labor in the workaday world. The apprentice, artist, and journeyman, labor, office worker, waitress, and in a class by itself, homemaker. We must not ignore these warnings in the Book of Mormon. The people began to be distinguished by ranks according to their riches and their chances for learning. Some were ignorant because of their poverty, and others did receive great learning because of their riches. Some were lifted up in pride, and others were exceedingly humble. And thus there became a great inequality, insomuch that the Church began to be broken up. Nephar warned us of those who, when they are learned, they think they are wise. And they hearken not to the counsel of God, for they set it aside, supposing that they know for themselves. Wherefore their wisdom is foolishness, and it profiteth them not, and they shall perish. He added, But to be learned is good, if they hearken unto the counsels of God. For those privileged to attend a Church school, there is a tuition other than money which we must require of you, a tuition of conduct and performance. Students who enroll in Church schools do so after an interview with their bishop and beginning this year with their stake president. 
They must commit to a standard of conduct consistent with faithful church membership. Occasionally, a bishop will interview one who easily qualifies scholastically but who has not kept the standards of the church. Perhaps the bishop will reason, the atmosphere at a church school will reform this one. Bishops should not do that. It is not fair to the literally thousands who are totally faithful but must be turned away because there is no room. And if, while enrolled, a student is found to be transgressing or in violation of standards pledged at the time of enrollment, however hard it may be upon the bishop, the student, or the parents, continued enrollment at a church school must be called into question. Our faculties and staff are a miracle. Men and women who have the highest academic degrees, many of them having been acclaimed for outstanding achievement, they are at once men and women of humility and faith. We are grateful for teachers who will challenge students to high scholarship but would not even think of undermining testimony or acting in any way subversive to the progress of the Church and Kingdom of God. Because of such quality teachers, our schools can be unsurpassed in meeting the standards set by those who accredit schools yet unique in mission and contribute much to the Church, even though a growing number of eligible students cannot enroll. Because salaries of faculty and staff are paid from the ties of the Church, there is a standard for them as well. A Church university is not established to provide employment for a faculty, and the personal scholarly research is not a dominant reason for funding a university. The educational Mount Everest mentioned by President Kimball will not be achieved solely through the prominence of the faculty. It will be reached through the achievement of the students. Our purpose is to produce students who have that rare and precious combination of a superb secular education, complemented by faith in the Lord a knowledge of the doctrines He has revealed and a testimony that they are true. For those very few whose focus is secular and who feel restrained as students or as teachers in such an environment, there are at present in the United States and Canada alone over 3,500 colleges and universities where they may find the kind of freedom they value. And we are determined to honor the trust of the tithe-payers of the Church. Students at other schools soon learn that some professors deliberately undermine faith and challenge your moral and spiritual values. You, in turn, must be free, even in our own schools, to return that challenge and defend your right to believe in God, to keep the covenants you have made through baptism and which you renew through the sacrament. We encourage our youth in every country to get an education, even if at times it seems hopeless. With determination and faith in the Lord, you will be blessed with success. It is a dream well worth pursuing. On one occasion, I spent a few minutes with a young man who had left high school and entered the military. Now he was trying to decide what to do with his life. I encouraged him to return to finish high school. I did not provide him with money. The Church had no school for him, not even a scholarship, 
In those few minutes, I simply taught him that self-reliance, which is such a part of our way of life. Even though over age, he returned to finish the high school. Now he provides for his family and encourages his children in their search for truth. Since I touched upon the subject of gathering of the saints, <clears throat> I must read a verse from the Doctrine and Covenants. I say unto you that it shall not be given to anyone to go forth to preach my gospel or to build up my church, except he be ordained by someone who has authority, and it is known to the church that he has authority and has been regularly ordained by the heads of the church. There are some among us now who have not been regularly ordained by the heads of the Church, who tell of impending political and economic chaos, the end of the world, something of the sky is falling, chicken licking of the fables. They are misleading members to gather to colonies or cults. Those deceivers say that the brethren do not know what is going on in the world or that the brethren approve of their teaching but do not wish to speak of it over the, public, the pulpit. Neither is true. The brethren, by virtue of traveling constantly everywhere on earth, certainly know what is going on, and by virtue of prophetic insight are able to read the signs of the times. Do not be deceived by them, those deceivers. If there is to be any gathering, it will be announced by those who have been regularly ordained and who are known to the Church to have authority. Come away from any others. Follow your leaders who have been duly ordained and have been publicly sustained, and you will not be led astray. The Lord said, The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Light and truth forsake the evil one. I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. God grant that as a Church and as families and as individuals, we can bring up our children, our youth, in light and truth, and that they may receive the testimony of Him of whom we bear witness, our Redeemer, our Savior, even Jesus Christ, for which I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.